You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, let's turn again in our Bibles to the first letter of the Apostle Peter, which we've been uh, reading, studying together. And uh, we have moved from the long opening section of First Peter, where he gives us a marvelous description of the privileges that we enjoy as Christians, uh, to this section where uh, into chapter 4, he is addressing these young Christians spread as alien residents, spiritually alien residents, throughout different parts of the Roman Empire, and he's speaking to them as they experience hardship and in some ways preparing the whole church for the official persecution that the Christians would later experience under various Roman emperors. So, we're reading in 1 Peter chapter 3 from verse 13, and this is if you're using the church Bible on page 1219. And I'm going to read the passage uh, not from the New International Version, but from the English Standard Version, though I think it was probably largely translated by Americans. It's called the English Standard Version. Now, says Peter, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. That's our passage for this evening, but as the connective at the beginning of the next verse makes clear, the passage flows on into what is generally agreed to be the most difficult passage in the whole of the New Testament to understand. So, let's read it, even although I won't make any attempt at helping you to understand it this evening. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers 
having been subjected to Him. I know a man who's a seminary professor in the United States who comes from the country of Romania, and I don't suppose I'll ever forget him speaking about the way in which his father, who was a Baptist pastor in Romania under the days, the oppressive days of Ceausescu, how his father would come home to the house obviously having been smashed up, beaten, uh, bloodied, and bruised. And it was those Romanian evangelical Christians who, suffering under Ceausescu's reign from the 1960s through to the 1980s, wrote an open letter to him in which they urged him to cease persecuting Christians for this reason, that evangelical Christians, he would find, were the very best citizens. In saying that, they were appealing to a long biblical tradition. Remember how Jeremiah had written to the exiles and told them to seek the good of the city of Babylon because God had placed them there in exile. And in a sense, Jeremiah was simply repeating the lessons that perhaps he also learned from the story of Joseph, who was in exile in Egypt and sought the good of the city and enabled it to prosper. And Daniel, in the city of Babylon in the harsh days of Nebuchadnezzar, nevertheless seeking the good of the city and people around him prospering as a result. And this is the background to what Peter is saying here in these verses. This is one of the reasons why he says, as you'll notice, that no one will ordinarily harm you if you are zealous for what is good, because being zealous for what is good is for the advantage of the city, is for the advantage of the country. Think how much our taxes would go down if people kept the Ten Commandments and were zealous to do so. And so, for all the faults and failures of us Christians, it's still true that Christians seek the good of the city. They seek the welfare of the state. And they also understand, as Peter understood, as the Apostle Paul also enunciated, that Christians regard themselves as following the ministry of state officials. Christians understand that God has given two ministries in our world, the ministry of the Word of God in the church and the ministry of the state, whose task under God is to prevent evil and punish it if it happens, and to reward good. And Peter anticipates that under all ordinary circumstances, before there is a, an implosion of a society, this is, this is a necessary prerequisite to the health of society. Those of you who go to weddings often and listen to the preamble that tells us that society can be strong and healthy 
only where the marriage bond is held in honor. Christians seek the good of the city, and where a city is going to prosper, those Christians will not be prosecuted and persecuted for being zealous for what is good. And Peter is, of course, writing, as I say, before the time of the official persecution of the church under the Roman Empire. He's writing at a time when Christianity is what was called a religio licita, an allowed religion among many religions. Just as Christianity is a religio licita in the state of the United Kingdom. But all that can be true officially, and yet, of course, Christians will suffer persecution. Christians, you and I, we may be zealous for what is good, but it will be precisely that that draws enemy fire. And this obviously was part and parcel of the lives of these young Christians to whom Peter is now writing. And he's going to speak to them about being persecuted. Notice the language he uses, being persecuted or suffering for righteousness' sake. Sometimes Christians suffer because they're stupid. Sometimes Christians suffer because they, they lack grace. Sometimes Christians suffer because they're angular. You're not speaking about that. He's not saying if you suffer as a Christian, it is necessarily because you are faithfully professing Jesus Christ. You may suffer because you've been stupid or been wrong or been pig-headed or been awkward or been judgmental in a ghastly way. But Peter assumes with these Christians that they're Christians who are seeking the righteousness of God and the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and that that will draw enemy fire. That will touch consciences that are faced with two options. One is to recognize God's grace and power and ask for its source, and the other is to get rid of whatever it is that reminds them that they are actually sinners before the throne of a holy God. And so, some will seek Christ because of the righteousness that they see in Christians, because they, they cannot explain it, but they see, if I can put it this way, this is what righteousness means. There's something about that life that is just right. It's just how, how a life ought to be. And my life isn't like that. And in some instances, of course, for some of the simplest reasons, it may be in your case because you're a Christian and you work hard in the office, and that angers somebody, and you find yourself being persecuted, as he says here, pursued, maligned, perhaps your reputation sullied, lies being told about you for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Jesus Christ. Now, unless I'm mistaken, at St. Peter's, we are not big into sermons that begin by saying, there are four things you need to know that 
cause us all to write down these four things, and then we know we're on the ball. But if we are persecuted for righteousness' sake, there are four things we need to know. And these are the things that Peter is speaking about in this particular section of his letter. He is saying, in a sense, forewarned is forearmed, but not quite. You can be forewarned. You can, you can know that as a Christian, you may, you may be oppressed by others. But it's actually possible to be a Christian who's unarmed. And so, he's giving us, he's giving us armor to wear. He's saying, you know, if you're in the middle of it, you need to learn about these things. If you've never experienced it yet, if you're such a young Christian and you've never experienced yet what it means for your Christian faith to anger somebody and for them to turn on you, then there are these four things you need to know. And the first of them is, is in a sense, not such a surprise to us because we know our Bibles. But when you think about it, it is a most surprising thing. He says, here is the first thing that you need to know. You need to know that even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. What's the first thing I need to know? In the face of persecution, oppression, the spoiling of my reputation, I need to expect to receive divine blessing. This is one of the signs in this passage, not the only sign, but this is one of the signs in this passage that Simon Peter was not wholly asleep on the mountainside when Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? This is a direct echo of the last of Jesus' beatitudes, as we call them in which He overturns all of our worldly values and our natural expectations. Blessed are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the last of those beatitudes returns to the first and says, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean by all this? How can it be that when, when I'm being hurt for my faith, I can say, this is a blessed experience? You probably know there's more than one word used in the New Testament for blessing and blessed. One of them uh, is, uh, is a verb that means to speak well of someone, used in Ephesians chapter 1. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He's, he's spoken a word into our hearts that transforms us. But then there's the word that's used in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 and, and used by Peter here. It's, it's the word familiar to uh, people of my generation because it was the name of the archbishop of Cyprus. You remember? He, he never seemed to match his name, Makarios. Remember? Happy. He was, he was the original Mr. Happy before the Mr. Men appeared. Actually, he was Archbishop Happy, but he had very little to smile about. 
And that's the word that's used here. It doesn't mean happy in the ho-ho-ho-happy sense. I think it means happy as we would use that word if you met a friend, someone you didn't expect to meet them, and said, this is a happy coincidence. Or, of course, you would say providence. Not in the sense that you were jovial and hap-hap-happy and clapping your hands and dancing around, but there was something wonderful about this situation. A long-lost friend, you didn't expect to meet him. It gives you joy to meet him. This is, this is, this is a blessed experience indeed. It's not so much about what I feel inside as it is about the truth of the situation. This was a, a happy providence. Not because I felt happy about it, which I might or I might not, but because it, it brought blessing to me. And this is what Jesus and Peter, echoing Jesus, are both saying. Now, how can that be? Well, we all kinds of clues about this in the Bible, because in, in the New Testament especially, there were waves of this experience right through the Acts of the Apostles. But do you remember on one occasion when the apostles experienced persecution, that the story is brought together by us learning that the disciples, the apostles, felt themselves to be blessed because they were counted fit, suitable to suffer for the name of Jesus. What was going on in their minds? I think it was something like this. This isn't really about me. This is about Jesus. But this is happening to me because I have this amazing privilege of being so connected to Jesus through faith in Jesus, through being united to Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, that there must be something about what we are saying, what we are doing, how we are living that reminds these people of Jesus enough for them to want to get rid of us as they wanted to get rid of Jesus. Actually, what I think the word makarios means in the Beatitudes, because it begins with, you're blessed because the kingdom of heaven belongs to you, is this, that you actually begin to taste here on earth something of the, the wonder and the privilege and the security and the joy of the life of God's very presence. Indeed, that's that's basically how the New Testament thinks about what it means to be a Christian. It means that the blessings that God has promised for the future begin to be ours now in the present, even although there is this oppression and persecution. So, this is the first thing that we need to know. We need to be absolutely convinced of this, actually, because this is one of the things that forms the foundation of what he goes on to say. I will be able to go through oppression, difficulty, snide remarks, persecution, 
if I'm absolutely convinced that God's Word is true, that Jesus' promise will be fulfilled, that in that situation, I will experience the blessings of the kingdom of heaven. And of course, this is, uh, this is where we want to say to God now, just, just give that to me now before it ever happens, and then I'll believe. But that wouldn't be believing, would it? This is a life of faith that Peter is calling us to. And we do need to understand that as we trust in the Lord, He will fulfill His Word at the time we need the blessing, but not necessarily before. So, this is a wonderful anchor to my faith at the same time as being a tremendous challenge to my faith. But this is the first thing I need to know. I need to expect to receive divine blessing. The second thing that Peter tells us we need to know, you find in verse 14. He says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Therefore, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. Now, it's not obvious in our English versions, but uh, Peter is actually reflecting here on the experience of the prophet Isaiah. These words are, are almost picked out of Isaiah's words in Isaiah chapter 8, where he's conscious of the, the way in which the people around him are filled with fear, and they're likely to make false alliances with neighboring pagan countries in order to defend themselves against the inevitability of their destruction. And uh, Isaiah says, don't fear what they fear. Isaiah says, sanctify the Lord in your heart. And this is such an interesting verse because um, what Isaiah says is, is, sanctify the Lord God in your heart. What Peter is saying is sanctify the Lord Jesus in your heart, and you can see the connection in his mind. This fisherman, probably a prosperous fisherman, a, a fishing businessman over there at the Sea of Galilee, and he is identifying the Lord Jesus with Yahweh, with Jehovah, with the Lord. And of course, this is why we this is why we don't need to fear them. Now, the, the translation is a little difficult. Um, the New International Version is one. My English Standard Version has another. Um, what he literally says to us is that we are not to fear the fear of them. And, well, what does that mean in English? It could mean several things in English. The bottom line of what Peter is saying, I think, is this. This is always what opposition to the Christian faith wants to produce. It wants to produce fear in us. What does that mean? It means opposition to the Christian faith will always, whether intellectually or socially, or personally, it will always seek to intimidate us. 
That's what makes us draw back, isn't it? That, that, this, that these intellectual forums of, of haunting Christians down, they, they're so big, they, the people are so eloquent, their arguments seem to be so approved of by the masses in general, or physically, or there's a risk of you losing your job. Paul says we're not ignorant of the devil's strategies, and he's only got so many, and one of the ones he constantly uses, it is his frequent resource, is to intimidate me, to make me feel small, to, to shrink into myself, to feel, but I'm just a little Christian, and I'm not able to argue with you, or, or I don't have the big position, and so I'm not able to respond. Intimidation, intimidation, intimidation. It's all the way through the Bible. So, who is able to stand in the face of it? Oh, you read through the stories of men and women in the Bible, and the people who always stand are the people who have sanctified the Lord in their hearts, and they realize no matter how big the intimidator happens to be, he or she is a miniature by comparison with the one you have sanctified in your heart. Think of that little servant girl that comes to mind in the Naaman story. She's this great general. I mean, this is, this is like the lady who cleans the Hilton Hotel that General Eisenhower is staying in. Now, some of you have no idea who General Eisenhower was. Some great general, President of the United States of America, most powerful man in the world. And she's trembling. You know, he's, he's, he, what's he done? You know, he's maybe spilled his coffee on the carpet. She daren't say anything. But this little servant girl, anonymous servant girl, says to the mighty Naaman, who's now got leprosy. I know somebody who can heal you. What is it that gives the midwives in Egypt when they're told to livingly abort the male children the courage not to do so? Well, we're told it's because they feared the Lord. That doesn't mean they were terrified of Him. It means that they loved Him, they trusted Him, and that they reverenced and sanctified Him in their hearts. That's a great secret, my friends. I don't know if I've told you before, I remember as a student, William Still in Aberdeen, now of, he was a legend while he was still alive, and a legend now that he's in heaven saying to me, Sinclair, he said, you must always reserve in your heart a sanctuary for the Lord Jesus Christ, into which sanctuary nobody and nothing apart from him ever enters. And you see, when you do that, there's a sense in which you become invincible, because he's, he's been sanctified in your heart. And they can do what they want, but they cannot break down the sanctuary. And so you will be enabled to stand. Because you see what they don't see. It's, 
You know, it's the little servant boy going out and seeing the hills surrounded by the enemy and then the prophet praying, open the young man's eyes and he sees the the hosts of heaven. And uh, the enemy army becomes small. This faith needs to see above the heads of the intimidator who grows so large that you feel you can't see any way out and you're done for. And you need to look beyond and to see that the Lord is there and that the Lord is sovereign. The Lord is in control and the Lord will judge. And so you're able to say you can, you can do your worst, but the Lord will look after me. But then there's a third thing that he tells us he very much wants us to understand, and it's this, that we need to be ready to give an answer or a reason for the hope that's in us. He says, sanctify Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts, and always be prepared to make a defense. Now, that's the word from which we get the word apologetics. Make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. This is the great text for people who are interested in, as we all should be, Christian apologetics, the explanation and defense of the Christian faith. And Peter is saying, you, you, you always need to be ready. And what has long interested me in this statement is, you need to be ready for people who ask you about the hope that's in you. It struck me so often, that tells you something about the countercultural lifestyle of these Christians. You know, that they weren't scratching around as we are thinking, how can I open a conversation here about the gospel? It, it, was, it was unbelievers who opened the conversations about the gospel, even if they were antagonistic conversations about the gospel. And he says, now you must always be ready to give a reason, an explanation for the hope that's in you. Now, that's interesting, I think. I think that's really interesting. The Bible is really interesting, interestingly, isn't it? What these pagans notice is hope. Now, where do you see that? Now, you see that nowadays at a Christian's funeral that pagans attend. I remember a woman saying to me after a, a funeral service I took, I didn't know I was coming to a worship service. I thought I was coming to a funeral. You see, no hope. I've conducted some funeral services in which I've felt as though I am in a room with no windows, where the windows have all been bricked up, and the door is now being bricked up. And there is such a sense of utter despair and hopelessness and confusion and lostness and we don't know what to do-ness that you, that you just feel uh, these people are going to suffocate. And of course, what happens nowadays is they try to joke their way out of it. It's been one of the strange transitions. And you see this is what marks out the Christian. The, the Christian in this situation is not, not all, he's not Mr. Sad, or Miss Sad, or Mrs. Sad, or Master Sad. 
He's Mr. or Mrs. or Miss or Master Hope. Because he's been blessed, she's been blessed. The, the privileges of the gifts of God have already entered our hearts. In a sense, we're, we're living the life of heaven already because God has poured His love into our hearts that fills us with hope for the future. We know where we're going. And so they ask us about that hope. What are we going to say? We remember how earlier on, right at the beginning, almost in his first words, Peter had spoken about how we've been born again to a new and living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, that's the essence of it. My day when we were youngsters, we were taught choruses. We called them choruses. Now we're taught choruses, but people call them something different. And there were two choruses that stuck in my mind. One of them was this. It went something like this. He lives, He lives, Christ Jesus lives today. You ask me how I know He lives. He lives within my heart. Okay, some of you remember that. How do you know Christ lives? Because He lives within your heart. That's actually not adequate. That's simply your experience. It's true He lives within your heart, but it's not a reasoned exposition of the Christian faith. That's not what… You know, when the, when the apostles and the others were asked about their faith, they didn't say, Jesus is living in my heart. There are people who don't believe in the resurrection who will tell you Jesus is living in their heart. The other chorus was much better. Living, He loved me. Dying, He saved me. Buried, He carried my sins far away. Rising, He justified freely forever. One day, He's coming, O glorious day. Now, you need both of these because Peter in chapter 1, verse 3, gives us both of these. He says, we've been born again. That's something that has happened to us. We've been born again to a new and living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, the first thing is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why is that so important? Important because it happened. But it's important because it happened in history. It wasn't a theory these apostles did not believe in or teach a theory of the resurrection. They knew that this resurrection had taken place in the space-time continuum, that their Savior had died and that He had been raised again, and that that was the reality that had transformed their lives. And now through the Spirit, He'd come to live within their hearts. And so, there are always these two parts to our reasoned explanation of the Christian faith. One is the facts of the gospel. And the other is, of course, our experience of the gospel. The wonderful fact, you can go to any part of the world, and if you meet believing Christians, even if you need an interpreter or translator so that you can speak to each other, you end up saying, that's exactly what I experienced too. 
And this is, this is how it happens. So, when someone asks a reason for the hope that's in you, you don't just tell them about your own experience. Especially today, you don't just tell them about your own experience. You tell them what that experience is founded on. If need be, you say to them, look, you know, there are all these people who didn't believe in the resurrection, who, who s- s- some of them very considerable intellectuals, who then went to examine the evidence, and, and they came to one conclusion. This is a fact of history, and it transformed the lives of these people, and it's been transforming the lives of people all over the world ever since more Christians in the world today than there have ever been, Mr. Intimidator. And the marvel is that that resurrection from the dead has produced in me a resurrection to a new life and to a living hope. And so, he says, you must always be ready to give an answer for the hope that's in you. But he says, you notice this, he must have known Christians. Must have been some real Christian oddballs in the congregation that Peter served by. He says, now remember, look at the words he adds. Do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. Do it with gentleness and respect or fear, perhaps fear of God. Remember, you're doing it in His presence. Cornelius Van Til, some of you know his name, great Christian apologist of the 20th century, used to speak about the, uh, the carriage that, that Luther's protector used to ride around in with, with a Latin motto on the side, suaviter in modo, fortiter in re. Now, Westminster divines tell us not to use foreign tongues when we're preaching, so let me translate that. What does it mean? It means something like this. It means suaviter in modo, gracious disposition because of Jesus, fortiter in re, utter conviction about Jesus. Now, you see, convictions can actually contort us, and they do to some people. Some people think strong convictions are best manifest in angry tones. So, why does… I mean, Peter was good at angry tones, wasn't he? And Peter was able to… Peter almost head-butted Jesus at one time. He was good at angry tones. Why was that not the way? You know? get the sword and knock their heads off. Why is that not the way? Because it wasn't Jesus' way. It wasn't Jesus' way. Think of Him bearing His testimony. Think of the apostles bearing their testimony. And you see, why is this so significant? They'll, they'll squash us. Our backs will be against the wall. No, says Peter, what will happen is they'll see a further connection between you and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, he's saying, here is how it goes. We expect divine blessing. 
We don't fear the opposition. We are ready to give a reason for the hope that's in us. And then the fourth thing, which in a sense couples with the first thing. So, expect to be fruitful in your witness. Look at what he says. Do this with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. That probably doesn't mean they'll be embarrassed. Maybe they will. Let's hope they will. It's more got the flavor of that Old Testament language when, that, when an army is routed and we're told they were put to shame. They were left without a leg to stand on. No matter how much they might huff and they might puff, they could not blow the house down. And that's what he's saying. He's saying ultimately the staggering thing is that little you, dear Christian friends, in all of these different parts of the empire, where you don't apparently have the rights of being citizens, you don't have the protections others have, and people are trying to destroy you, and as they, as they intimidate you and try to make you feel as small as they possibly can, what happens is you just seem to grow bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and they learn you cannot keep a good man or a good woman in Christ down. Because the kingdom of God is like Doctor Who's TARDIS, isn't it? I haven't watched Doctor Who for a while. They may have changed the TARDIS, but I saw the first episode, and if I remember rightly, it was a battered-up old police box. But as soon as you stepped in, it was a, it was a machine of spectacular grandness that seemed to belong to the ages. And that's what it means to come to faith in Christ. You, you, it didn't look much from the outside, but inside it is spectacularly grand. He is spectacularly grand. And do you belong to a fellowship of the ages? Abraham is your father. Peter is your brother. And the enemy is put to shame. And so he concludes, at least in an interim way, so it really is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Because ultimately, as he looks forward to the consummation of these blessings, ultimately, the dark shadow that lies behind those who seek to destroy the church of Jesus Christ is that they will be put to shame. The enemies will be scattered, and God will reign. And we see this in the New Testament, how the priests who were so opposed to Jesus were told in the early chapters of Acts they were pouring into the church because they realized they had been defeated and they wanted to find salvation. And the apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, put to shame coming to faith in Jesus Christ. I came across a really striking example of this just the other day in the Press and Journal, of all things. 
Those of you who don't know what the press and journal is, it's the newspaper around here. And it reminded me of an event that took place, I think, in 1972. I was a young assistant minister in St. George's Tron, as it then was. I was responsible for outreach and evangelism on Friday nights with the young people. I mean, teenagers, it's kind of mind-bending now. We would meet for an hour of prayer and Bible study and then go out into the streets and just speak to people, give them tracts, invite them back in, give them coffee, and occasionally with these bands and all the rest of it. And there was one, I think it was a Friday night, a couple of the girls, I think they were like 18 and 19, just ordinary girls, regular girls. They, they weren't back at the set time. I was beginning to get worried at visions of their parents, you know, screwing my neck. And eventually they came. I said, where have you been? Oh, they said we were at the after gig because we knew that Alice Cooper was in town. Now, Alice Cooper, for those of you who are not as with it as I happen to be with it, is usually known as the godfather of shock rock. And he really was shock rock. I mean, they were saying, I remember them saying in the papers, if there's a murder during a rock concert, it will be an Alice Cooper rock concert. And these girls had gone along to the, the Apre gig, and the bouncer had said, what are you girls, I mean, 19-year-old girls, what are you girls doing here? So we want to tell Alice Cooper about Jesus. The bouncer said to them, well, you'd better go in. He certainly needs to hear about Jesus. And in they went, and back they came mercifully. Well, the next I heard of Alice Cooper was when he turned up at a Ligonier conference in the United States, the ministry of R.C. Sproul. And then almost the next I hear of him is in the Press and Journal, in the Who Said section. Drinking beer is easy, says Alice Cooper. That's not his real name, by the way. Drinking beer is easy. Trashing your hotel room is easy, both of which he did in large measure. But being a Christian, that's a tough call. That's rebellion. And that's what he is. All that stuff put to flight. And Alice Cooper, or whatever his real name is, brought to faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, I wish I knew the divine lines of connection between these two teenage girls who had the courage, I mean the courage, to say to the bouncer, we want to tell Alice Cooper about Jesus. That's how God works. And so there are four things you need to know. Expect divine blessing. Don't fear the opposition. Be ready to give a reason for the hope that's in you. And expect to be fruitful, because this is the Lord's way. And God willing, we'll get to the really difficult passage next Lord's Day evening. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and for the way in which it finds us in every situation in our lives, speaks into our joys, speaks into our sorrows, shows us the wonder of the gospel, teaches us how to live out the gospel, tells us how to live the Christian life in a post-Christian society for the glory of our Savior. Help us, we pray, in this coming week, whatever 
comes our way to realize as we sanctify the Lord in our hearts that He Himself is far bigger, far grander, far more glorious than any opposition that we ourselves may meet and make us fruitful, we pray, even if we never see that fruit ourselves. Make us fruitful for His glory. We pray in His name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.